All right, everybody, and welcome to another episode of This Week in Hearing. I am absolutely thrilled uh, to be joined today by a team of three great individuals. I have Dr. John McDermott, I have Dr. Nikki Booth, and I have Dr. Gino Mile. Uh, so thank you three so much for coming on the show today. Um, we are going to be discussing genetic screenings in the world of hearing healthcare. Uh, I think kind of the forefront of maybe how a lot of our um, screenings and, and uh, that part of the process uh, is being innovated upon. So on that note, let's kick it over to the guests. Let them all introduce themselves. We'll start with you, uh, Nikki, ladies first. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nikki Booth and I um, am the research nurse manager um, at the neonatal unit at St. Mary's Hospital in Manchester. Fantastic. John? Thanks very much. I'm John McDermott. I'm a clinical geneticist based here in Manchester and a research fellow at the university. Fantastic. And Gino? Hi, I'm R&D director for a company called GeneDrive uh, based in Manchester in the UK and we're uh, focused on development of uh, molecular in vitro diagnostics and medical devices. Fantastic. Again, thank you three so much for joining today. So let's start with you, John. Why don't you sort of um, because I know that you and Professor Bill Newman um, were sort of at the tip of the spear here in developing this study. Um, so why don't you kind of lay out um, what the study was and is um, and how it came to be? Yeah, sure. So our group are particularly interested in a concept called pharmacogenetics, which is how you can use genetic information to improve the safety or effectiveness of medicines. And we know that many medicines, genetic changes that are common in the population can impact how they work in different people. And there's been robust evidence built up over many, many years around individual gene repairs. And one of those is the relationship between a gene called RNR1, which is a, a mitochondrial gene, and uh, aminoglycoside antibiotics. And in the latter part of the 20th century, a number of publications came out noting that certain individuals in certain families were predisposed to aminoglycoside-induced ototoxicity, so aminoglycoside-induced hearing loss, when they received just a single dose of aminoglycoside, so a profound and irreversible reaction. And lots of studies were done describing that relationship, and it was in 1993 that a paper came out showing that it was related to a single change in this gene, um, in position 1555, um, an A to G substitution. So that profound relationship between a single gene change and aminoglycoside-induced hearing loss has been established for uh, nearly 30, well, 30 years now. But the question was, how can you actually use that information in practice to improve patient outcomes? And a lot of that is about developing testing strategies and uh, doing implementation trials. And so the standard Genetic testing usually takes many weeks or, or, or many months to do a test. So on the NHS, there is a test where you can look for this gene change, but it takes around three to five weeks to get a result back. So I see patients in my clinic who might have hearing loss. And when we're investigating the cause, I can request that test. And, and that's fine because it works in that paradigm where you have a patient and there's no clinical urgency. But we know, and, and Nikki will be able to talk a lot about this, that there are another cohort of patients who receive large doses of aminoglycosides, and that's in neonatal sepsis. So babies coming through the neonatal intensive care unit 
around the world and specifically in the UK from our perspective, um, the guidance is that they should receive an aminoglycoside antibiotic and a beta-lactam, so like a penicillin-based antibiotic. And those individuals should receive that antibiotic within an hour. And so that was the challenge that we were faced with. You simply, with the technology that existed, you couldn't do this test in clinical practice for that cohort of individuals. And this was a clinically significant problem at scale. There's around 100,000 admission, admissions to um, NICU each year and who receive these antibiotics. So based on the population prevalence of this change, which is around one in 500, it's around 200 babies who are at risk of hearing loss. So that was the kind of clinical challenge we were faced with. And around five years ago, we partnered with um, a uh, with Gino's company, with GeneDrive, to look and see whether we could develop a test that could deliver a clinically relevant result in a, in a clinically relevant timeframe. So that's really the background. That's I love that. Thank you so much for um, giving me some background there. And just to kind of summarize as as I understand it, um, you know, so you said there is a way in which you could detect this uh, genetic anomaly, if you will, but in the with the existing standard in the NHS, it takes three to five weeks. But as you're saying, you know, uh, of the hundred thousand babies that would be um, born every year that are in the neonatal that would potentially need this medication um, that, you know, you need to administer that medication within an hour. And so the challenge is that that medication can actually be quite damaging from a hearing loss standpoint, if you have this genetic anomaly. And so you have to be able to screen that under an hour, right? And so then enter Gino and Gene Drive. So Gino, I'm going to kick it over to you now. Can you walk me through what the challenges were with this? And maybe just kind of a high level overview of genetic sequencing, testing, the innovation that's occurred that has allowed for the kind of breakthrough to, in John's words, um, make this clinically feasible and relevant within the time constraints and all that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, as, 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 as John alluded to, I mean, it was about five years ago, like all um, or most uh, great science, you know, it, it sort of occurred over a bit of a coffee at a conference, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, John and Bill had a clinical problem and we had a, an instrument which was capable of amplifying DNA in rapid time frame. So at that point, it was about an hour. Um, you know, and we, we discussed the possibility and I got some grants for pilot studies. I um, mean, at that point, the instrument was um, uh, a bit different than it is just now. It was mostly uh, positioned for... Um, you know, resource limited settings. So, you know, portability was key and simplicity was key, but speed was key. But the challenges with this were, you know, um, it had to be, the, the the result had to be very clear, very uh, easily actionable and available to the clinician in an under an hour, but ideally under half an hour. So to be able to bring a complex, you know, genetic test to point of care, um, to be used by users which um, uh, you know have, have have no real you know prior experience of implementing genetic tests into uh, emergency care you know required a, a couple of things to happen you know one was we had to develop a test which you know the the, the chemistry was able to do that within half an hour um, and there were some challenges around that with 
Um, in the lab, it's fine, but bringing it to the point where you know it's usable in a, a, a sort of emergency care setting has has numerous challenges associated with it. Um, so we had to develop a, a what's called a freeze dried assay for this. Um, you know, so that everything's ambient stable, stable at room temperature, which is really important in when you think about the logistics or trying to avoid the logistics of cold chain storage, you know, storage in fridges and freezers around the world in all of the in all of the settings. So everything's ambient stable. And we utilize the technology called LAMP, um, which is capable of amplifying DNA very, very quickly um, to very large amounts. And we repurposed that for um, uh, inclusion in our, our reader, which is an amplification device. Um, so it amplifies the DNA, uh, does the complex genetic analysis for this single variant, and then very importantly, just returns a, a, a clear result. So no user interpretation required, just a variant detected or variant not detected. And then the healthcare workers can act on the clinical guidelines in that country at, at that time. Um, I think you know that was technical challenges, um, and and you know they're fairly easy to overcome. But you know coming back to this whole notion of you know complex genetic test is usually done in a central lab, as John said, three to five weeks. And what you're trying to do here is put it into the uh, the hands of you know the people who are at the point of care uh, and need to make those decisions. And that was a a bit of a learning curve. Uh, for us to bring that into it was a learning curve and a huge opportunity as well, to be honest. Um, but it allowed us to, um, you know, under the the implementation study, you know, learn what you know Nikki Nikki's team, you know, as representative user needed from this instrument and this test in order to be able to you know concentrate on the clinical care rather than the technical aspects of of, of setting up a test. Um, you know, so there was a couple of things there that 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 were extremely useful for us to learn, and you know, we transitioned from the type of instrument we had before into you know what we have now, which is you know uh, we're commercializing um, you know a true point of care device that can be used at point of care, and importantly, you know, has features that make it amenable to uh, ease of use in those settings. Um, as well as the ambient stable uh, reagents as well. So, so yeah, that's where we're at. Yeah, just uh, this whole thing is so fascinating to me. I mean, it it seems truly cutting edge that um, you can do something like sequence somebody's genetic, uh, you know, code in in um, a matter of under an hour. Um, it just seems like this is going to lead to so many different kinds of breakthroughs um, as we understand more on an individual basis what people are susceptible to and all that. So, Nikki, over to you here um, as somebody that's actually been using the uh, this specific gene drive machine um, and, and administering these types of screenings. Can you talk about what your experience has been like um, using this? Uh, yeah. Um, so when we first started the study, the, the, I guess the first challenge was um, in terms of training a fairly large workforce of nurses because obviously babies are born and admitted um, at any time of the day. Uh, in UK standards, our unit is pretty big. Um, we've got, well, we did have a, a, over 250 uh, members of the nursing team, and it would be the nursing team that would would take the swab and uh, process the test. Um, and we have maybe about 100 babies per month admitted onto the unit. So um, we had to think about 
training staff and how that would work. Um, and we obviously had to consider the fact that when a sick baby is born and admitted to the neonatal unit, it is obviously a really busy time uh, anyway. And the priority is absolutely stabilisation of the baby and, and the golden hour, that that one hour that we concentrate has um, known known impact on long-term outcomes which is why we have that that goal to stabilize the baby in, in all ways so we're we were asking the team to add in an extra um task or an extra part of that golden hour so we we did think that that might be a challenge but uh, we do other admission swabs at the same time so it all it all just um became part of the swabs that the, the baby needed to have on admission anyway. Um, training training was, was ongoing. Uh, we started before the study uh, began by doing um, training for the senior team and then cascaded that down to more junior members so that we always knew that there was somebody senior uh, on duty that will be able to run the test and, and gradually towards the end of the study most people could do that and that's been the case as we've implemented it into our normal um, clinical practice since October of last year um, and I think because the impact is so huge uh, and we actually identified a baby within the first week of testing um, that was positive for the genetic change. I think that had a huge impact on the clinical workforce and it really drove home how important this was um, to That's become so part cool. of what we did. Yeah, really cool. Um, so yeah, it quickly it quickly just became part of what we what we normally do. Uh, the other challenge, I guess, for us was um we take older babies, sometimes they don't always just come straight from delivery suite. We we uh, transfer babies in that are sick and need um, specialist services. So, so we just had to make sure that even if those babies had already received antibiotics, it became part of what we did for every single admission. Um, and we just test, we now test every single admission. So, um, so yeah, I think it's quickly become embedded in what we do and, um, and training just continues for new staff coming along or those members of staff that haven't um, performed the test for a little while and just want, want a refresher. The test, the test isn't complicated and like Gino has said, um, has, has become more simplified um, as time has gone on. Um, and in hindsight, it feels a little bit like a lateral flow test. It's a buckle swab of the inside of the baby's cheek and it's very soft swab. It's really easy to do. And then um, you process it in not a, not a dissimilar way, like I say, to a lateral flow. And then um, pop it in the machine and just start it going. And then you can continue uh, with a normal routine uh, admission process while the machine is running its test. And then just pop back and, and pick the results up off the um of the device after 26 minutes and then that at that point that is when the decision is made as to which antibiotics we can we then prescribe so if the baby doesn't have the genetic variant we'll just continue with uh, our current guidance antibiotic which is which is gentamicin which is an aminoglycoside uh, and if the baby does have the variant then we can choose a safe um, alternative yeah, I mean, again, this is just so so cool. And the first thing that really comes to mind here is uh, 
you know, it sounds like you've had success, right? You've in the first week you've, you flagged a child um, that was uh, very much um, a candidate for an alternative type of um, antibiotic. And uh, so that's super validating. And I know, you know, kind of reading through the study, it sounds like you've perfected this to the point to where you're able to administer and get the results within about 26 minutes. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I think when, when we were designing the study, the, the, the key thing for us was to try to choose outcome measures that assess the real world implementation of the technology. So we were very conscious as we were writing the, the protocol that we didn't want to come along and say, look at our fancy test. Isn't it great? You can detect babies with the gene change and it performs like this or like this. But then actually if you could do all that, but it was disrupting normal clinical practice and it was taking twice as long to receive antibiotics or it wasn't being used in the intended way, then actually that wasn't a good intervention. And so our main outcome measure was, was the time to antibiotic therapy similar to previous practice or were we extending time to antibiotic therapy? And I think what we were able to demonstrate was that use of this new novel technology, nothing like this has ever been implemented before, it didn't seem to disrupt aspects of normal care, which was what we were really pleased about. So obviously identifying children with a variant and ensuring that they receive alternative antibiotics, that's critical, but also even for those babies who didn't have a positive result, showing that it can be part of routine practice was really important for us. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, you know, it's a big difference between um, theoretically you can do all this, but actual in the real world day to day of it, it sounds like Nikki and I had no idea that there was such a broad swath of nurses that were being trained on this. I mean, it has to be something that can be integrated quite seamlessly into that process, especially when you're talking about this delicate golden hour like that, which I have a follow-up question here just kind of came to me and this is a little loaded, but anyone can take this. Um, what else is possible with this? And can you be doing, can you be testing for multiple genetic anomalies, if you will, at once? I mean, can we almost think of this as the ability to have a swab and you test for you know, not necessarily just for things that would relate to hearing loss, but a full battery of, of, of tests more or less, um, like, is that, is that capable? Are these gene drive machines capable of sequencing uh, for a variety of different things, or is it kind of a single application um, per test? So, yeah, and I can take that. So, so, so it's, um, it's not necessarily sequencing. It's based on, it's based on identification of the sequence, but it's not sequencing per se, but technically, yeah, there's no reason why you can't look for multiple, multiple variants. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the follow-on products that we're working on again with, um, uh, you know, Bill and Newman and John and the team is with a, a, a more complex test that is for, um, identification of non-responder to a drug called clopidogrel in emergency care in, in, in stroke settings. And um, obviously that's not the purpose of purpose today, but just to use an example, yes, it is possible. Um, but you know, as you go from the least complex to the most complex, I mean, remember this is one single variant. Um, and you know, the challenges around you know implementation of that, getting it through adoption, getting it through UK approval, um, all relies on the simplicity of a clear actionable result the more complex you become you know that 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 becomes uh, much more of a challenge and if you take that to the extreme 
like next generation sequencing, where you're sequencing lots and lots of different things, and the information overload just comes into play, and it's difficult to manage that manage that information into you know clear you know actionable results. Great great data, but difficult to work with in a, a, a sort of time critical setting. So uh, technically, the answer is yes. Um, and you know we're all very excited about this this new emerging area of pharmacogenetics, as John said, and there's many applications. Um, but you also have to be very focused and make sure that you know you're 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 measuring something that has a clear actionable result and there's no ambiguity around it. Um, you know for for implementation and settings such as this. And I, I mean, our team certainly see a, a world where these types of data, so RNR one, but other genes like CYPTC19 and other pharmacogenes, are available when a patient presents, it's embedded within records, or if it's not embedded within records, you're doing rapid tests to generate that information. But that information has utility across healthcare in different healthcare settings. So being able to have that information in a interpretable format and a clinically relevant timeframe, which the gene drive system can deliver is, is critical. And I, we, we see it adding significant value and saving money for healthcare systems. Yeah, absolutely. It feels truly like the the uh, frontier of medicine. Um, so cool. So uh, on that note, um, I really appreciate you three coming on today to share about this study and how the implementation of it went and some of the different results. Um, it sounds like there's a lot more to come here on this. This is just getting started with what's possible um, in this area. So thank you three for coming on. And thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. We will chat with you next time. Cheers.